0: Welcome to the Your Data Driven podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis and driving faster. Welcome to episode 25. In this episode, I'm talking to Scott Drawer, Scott doesn't have a motorsports background himself, but he was responsible for bringing McLaren Formula 1 into the world of British Olympic sports. In this show, we discuss the power of performance planning and how that's helped teams such as Team Sky and England Rugby succeed at the very highest level. He puts to bed some of the myths around marginal gains and gives you several tips and ideas that you can try to try and improve your performance in ways that may not be immediately obvious to you. Scott covers a lot of ground in a short space of time, so get Yourself comfortable, grab a notepad and a coffee, sit back and enjoy what Scott has to say. So, welcome Scott! Welcome Samir. How are you?
1: Yeah, very well. Um, been a busy term, but I'm going to
2: that all good. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's a really busy time, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It's yeah, a it slightly be. different angle, your experience, and, and I think people will be really fascinated to hear what mm. you've been up to, the kind of people you work with, and how you've approached uh, your career in working with athletes and sport. Mm. But one of the things that would be really helpful is if we can work towards a way that people listening can get like maybe one or two takeaways yeah. How they can approach their own racing in, in motorsports, yeah. they can think, okay, that's how these guys have approached and, and what can we learn? But maybe there's one or two things in there that they hadn't thought of before. They could take away and go, yeah, actually, I'm going to try that uh, yeah. and give that a go. I never thought of it that way. How, how does that sound?
1: Yeah, good. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, do bring me back in online if it doesn't get towards that perspective of trying to give some people practical things to take away. But I think one of the things that may be worth just starting with to help people understand my career journey, and like most people, you never know what that career journey is going to be. But I've, I've been very fortunate to work in sport, mainly high performance sport, for more than 20 years.
2: Where did you start in sport though? Were you an athlete so Were you a competitor?
1: i if I wind all the way back, really. I, I did followed sport science in my education program, ended up doing a PhD at Loughborough University. It was very much about risk, the concept of risk in sport, particularly around injury risk, injury management. But I've always had a passion and love the sport. Probably more a generalist, I was never brilliant at one sport, played lots to a good regional level, but just never excelled in any, really. Because I think you do get to a particular point in your life where you need to zoom down on a main sport, invariably, to put the time there for hours and the dedicated practice to achieve whatever it is that you've got in your locker, to be some senses. So after my PhD, I entered the UK, United Kingdom, Olympic, Paralympic system, as it was, very early 2000, which looks nothing like it does now. So it was a very, it was like a startup is the way I describe it. I went into a role, had a strong statistical mathematical background, and believe it or not, PhD was very epidemiological based. What's that? Epidemiology is where you study population statistics. So very statistical driven in that basis, really. So we we were doing that, trying to study and understand risk patterns in professional football. And that was driven by my supervisor who came from the health and safety industry. And often what people didn't realize is a professional club, and it wasn't professional football, in theory, have to adhere to health and safety regulation. So you never think about a professional footballer ultimately as an employee. And therefore, you need your health and safety processes in place. You need to be measuring and understanding risk and putting mitigation in place. It's no different to what happens in motorsport, really. But um, it's a professional football, you understand what those injury risk factors are through epidemiology. And then because you would apply good sports science practice to... Manage and mitigate against them. That's where my background came in with my supervisor. So that's where it all started. I went into an Olympic system, as I say, which really stemmed from, I guess, where was it? The original plan for the British Olympic system was to have a massive centre, the Australian Institute of Sport. They realised that wasn't right for the UK. We ended up with a very devolved sort of system of lots of services, lots of centres based where athletes were. So I came in at that time. It's very startup mentality. Lottery funding was coming into sport and enabled athletes to live and train full time. And the first impact of that was really Sydney 2000, and then it moved on. And all we've seen is an upward growth. And then that system's become a lot more sophisticated. So I started even before the English Institute for Sport was even existed, as it currently did. As I evolved through that startup, in some respects, I ended up leading what became known as research innovation. We'd take on project work with sports. And a big emphasis of that work ended up being quite engineer and technology focused. And really my role, the best way, is a bit like describing, I used to say, a bit like the conductor of an orchestra. Sport would come in um, and they'd say, we've got these problems and we don't know how to do this. And it was a two-way process. God, we've seen this, what do you think? And my job was to put that orchestra together. So to find the most talented individuals there were who had the right skills and expertise to work together to solve those problems. And a lot of it was engineering and tech-focused. And when you take a step back at that time, I just probably realised that motorsport valley, as it was known, the amount of British talent um, and how it evolved Formula One and motorsport was relative to some of our other sports meant you just tap into that expertise. So I led a whole whack of projects really up and up into London, and you contributed to some of those things.
2: Um, <laughs> small, a small Well, one.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a big period of time of developing the team, we would talk about having a very small, fast moving speedboat of a team, but we had this network of thousands. And we're able to react and respond really quickly rather than employing your own often, which means it get, can get quite slow. We just You talk about the super tanker analogy. We would use the expertise outside, contract people in, understand problems, try to provide solutions and then and move, move on. And of course, and that's, That's a constant evolving learning process. It's very organic in terms of what you do. So I then moved to work in England rugby. I really needed a change at that time, which is, again, a very different career experience, working in player development. And the RFU, when you work really in a national governing body, is big. It's big and cumbersome. In fact, it was much slower than working for government in that sense. So you learn a lot of different skills around how you take people with you, really. You're relying on others and stakeholders and a lot around stakeholder management and just building good trust and relationships with others. It happened previously, but it was very different. And then I had a unique opportunity. I was never planning on, as you do invariably, leaving those roles, but a great opportunity to go back and work directly with Team Sky in professional cycling. And initially, I went in to work with the CEO of Sky and Sir Dave Brailsford, and they were really looking at what they were doing in Team Sky. How can they learn those lessons about heavy approach? winning bike races, what are the key things they can learn that will benefit sport in general? Everything from participation through to high performance, but other domains, so music, art, entertainment, all those, what's going on and how can we learn from one another? So it became the concept of the Sky Performance Hub, which is very multi-domain multi-dimensional we were going through some challenging times team sky at that time and i ended up with other people leaving i ended up getting embedded a lot more in the team and picking up a lot more of the science and medicine programs and working on the innovation of lots of other things so when in some respect i was in a team rather than a national governing body in a system and we were trying to do it in a very different way really driving what we needed to do
2: those ideas of marginal gains and things like that, that's something that's been quite popularised. Yeah, you know? actually, I,
1: I did a presentation for the United Kingdom Sport Strength and Conditioner Association about that, because it's a really misunderstood concept, actually. People think about marginal gains in relation to those one percenters. But actually, that's always an outcome of a number of things. And what people never saw or never experienced was the level of thought, process, planning, dynamism and art went into thinking about how you're going to win a bike race. There's always there's marginal gains was the consequence of really good performance planning. So in those early days, if you're trying to win a Tour de France, being able to map it as much detail as possible about what you need to do. So it's really about effective performance planning and thinking about all those factors, things you can measure, things you can't measure, thinking about where you were at that moment in time relative to what's going to be needed to do it, putting plans in place, managing the risks, And in effect, it was planning and contingency (laughs) and then realizing that no plan realistically survives the first contact with the enemy and then having what contingency you had in place to react and respond. You needed a performance plan, you needed to triage, and then you needed to move really bloody quickly to respond to what's playing in front of you. And that is marginal gain. That's what it was. Everyone thought it was about the set of interventions. But what had gone in place? If I imagine you did your performance planning and you're thinking, what do we do? We've got to go to a Tour de France. We're trying to win this. The parkour or the course looks this particular way. It may say, actually, this year, there's a lot of time trials, or this year, there's a lot of mountain climbs or this, there's these types of stages. So you begin to break that thinking down and therefore you get to a point of saying what's important. You you prioritise because you can't do everything all the time.
2: How do you prioritise what is important? Because it's quite often, uh, I had someone on the show, everything's important most of the time or something like that. It's like, it's context driven.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you got to imagine it a bit like an amplifier. So marginal gains is always about performance planning, prioritization. And the reality is there is an art and the skill to decide in where you're going to invest your time and effort. You cannot escape the equation that there's only so much time and there's so much money. And what you're trying to decide is which dials are you going to decide to dial up? And you don't. And there's a real skill in that. But experienced coaches, experienced leaders, guys for Dave brails and other people that I work with, they read and understand those situations. There's a real depth of tacit knowledge, if they call it, of insight. You've got great DSs, great coaches around. And what people don't see is the dialogue that goes on, the constant dialogue all the time around trying to navigate that uncertainty, which is ultimately what you're trying to do, to decide, we're going to put our eggs in these baskets. Because if you think you can do everything all the time to the level of depth and quality, that's going to enable you compete. You you can't. The reality is you cannot. So marginal gains has always been about planning, thinking about where you got to get to. And then it's about that dynamic process of change and you have to make some decisions and okay. the really good people decide consistently if you look at the if I take an example of Jürgen Grobler um, who's won an Olympic gold medal I think the record is in every four that he's coached since the 70s and that's different crews different individuals different cultures different contexts you've got to think there's some tacit knowledge and insight and understanding there about what it takes to win which became this language used in the olympic system it became a very dogmatic process of so that what people missed in that the dialogue that goes on behind it the real trust yeah. that enables conversations to be had
2: someone's listening i think okay i get that but if i want to take what you just said there and apply it to my environment maybe i've got a small team around me i might have some i'm not in a huge organization i've got a few people around and i've got limited time and I've got a limited budget, but I'd like to focus on something. So have you got any tips for navigating those conversations? Is it all natural, like you and me talking now? Or is there some structure you put into those things? Or is it like, oh, we've got to have a meeting? What is it? What do they look
1: like? There's no right or wrong way. You need, In effect, the way I describe this, you need a, a big toolbox and a big network. So one of the things that you need to do, which I reflect back on in my time in the Olympic sport, we spent a long time, a lot of time meeting people and building these connected networks of expertise. Because when something comes up, a situation comes up that you've never faced before, what you wanted to do is have a consultation, be able to pick the phone up, let like, them face in this situation, what do you think? And I think what you end up doing is in effect surfacing the wisdom of the crowd. Because if you haven't been there before and others don't, it comes back to that expert opinion. And then of course, you've got to make the final decision and there may be a gut feel about what you think is right. But if everyone knew the answer, you wouldn't be asking the question.
2: And this is something that when I first started working in the sport, I was really shocked. I was going to some conferences and stuff and people were literally standing up and telling people in detail exactly what they did. Hmm. for me coming from a motorsport world that was really weird because it was literally don't tell anyone this because this is our secret sauce awesome, but this is giving us an advantage and if they do ask tell them the wrong thing but what i love about the sport world is like i'm going to tell you everything you're doing because it's not about that it's about the execution and it's also about if we can all pool the knowledge that the pond, the pond rises yeah, yeah, or, the, yeah. or, or the whole gene pool gets better yeah. and that's still really quite alien in motorsport. Of course, you do
1: get that in some of the sports that I've worked in, have I mean, not worked in F1. You will get a lot of that. But the reality is you spend time in it, you realize everyone's trying to do the same stuff. Got any real desperate, you know, on occasions, people have maybe, it's not that they've got something different and been able to move a bit faster. The thing that makes a difference is it's not the knowledge and knowing it. As you said, it's about your ability to take it and implement it faster than anybody else. There's, there is a great quote I often refer to, Gaga Aries de Use, and he talks about the only sustainable competitive advantage you can maintain is to learn faster than the opposition. And if you,
2: that.
1: yeah, and if you therefore hold your knowledge and hold your experiences and, not, and are not vulnerable enough in that sense to share them, you're missing an opportunity. So you have to be comfortable enough in that to be able to do that. Um, and you've got to be comfortable enough in your own skin to know that you cannot be the fountain of all knowledge. If you look at the emergence of technology, knowledge sharing, what's on the internet, all that stuff, you're just like, if, if you think you're further ahead than anybody else, I can assure you there's somebody else in a garage somewhere or another competitor nation that are on a similar journey. It's just, of course, you get you do get occasions when there's fundamentally a revolutionary breakthrough. But I think we'll all look at those and go, oh, maybe it was this time, maybe it was that time. And it's just... They often don't happen that often. So I think that does come with a mindset of being open to learn and feeling, yeah, I'm going to share this. I'm going to put it out there. And the fact where I'm going, that's okay because the difference is not about it's I am going to make a decision that's contextually relevant for me based on where I am at in my development, based on my networks, my connections. I've sought that advice. And ultimately, at some point, you have to make a decision. Sometimes it works you, sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't work, it's great because you've learned something. They would talk about there's again, I, I'll use them, but failed first attempt in learning. Yeah, that That's how if you keep winning and you keep successful, you do have an ingredient set. But if, if often that may mean you're playing safe.
2: Okay, so how do you manage that? Because there's some issue... So, for example, if you change the settings of your race car, it's going to affect the performance potential of what you can do. And allow. People are certainly in a club environment a bit nervous to do that or they're not really sure what to do. And what some people have been telling me you know, on the show and stuff is that what you need to do is just try it and experiment. And even if you go slower, it's still good because you now know what not to do sort of thing. Even yeah. if, you, if you do 10 things that make you go slower, that's a benefit. yeah. And- it takes—it's like a mind shift, and that to have the confidence yeah, yeah. to do that—is that something you would say?
1: Is that what you're saying? If you knew the answers, you'd already be doing it. You've got to put some context and purpose behind this, haven't you? Like, if I take your example of collaboration, I'm thinking it's not like you're trying to win an Olympic medal, is it? You're not trying to win a Formula One race. and, and that, but, but even then, you've got to put it in context. There's a bigger picture here. There's stuff going on in the world. So I think that there's got to be a context to all of this stuff. And that's invariably, if you take um, an Olympic coach, let's take a sport like canoe slalom, you're on a four-year journey, you will, you're will, you constantly experimenting. You may have a training program that you try for eight weeks and you see a response. You try it, You try the same training program for the next week. next eight weeks, you don't get a response. There's so much going on that we do not understand that you have to empirically test and experiment repeatedly to move forward. And that's where the shared knowledge, oh, I tried this in this context, and this is what worked for me. If you okay. if you just take somebody else's training program and replicate it in a completely different context with somebody who's got a completely different genetic makeup, is in a completely different country with a different competitive structure, you're just like. You're just you're wrong. It's it's not. It's and I think it's really recognizing that, as I say, be open-minded to it. Everybody's where they're at. Engage, connect, try things. That's how you move forward.
2: I think there's possibly a misconception that there's like in the racing world or or whatever, or even in cycling, uh, there's one best setup that we're chasing, and that's what all the pros have got. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is 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 not necessarily because we're amateurs, but we can still take a professional approach so we may not be professionals yeah. but there's a professional approach so what is the approach that the professionals take that we could then pick and choose of how to solve our own problems by yeah. by looking at those approaches and mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I would agree. It's interesting in my current role. And I'm in a private independent school, which is renowned for sport, a place called Millfield School. And I would talk about here, we're very fortunate to have a number of students who have, in fact, you know, Lando Norris came here. We've got some other guys that go and race because of the flexibility of the way we educate, so people can develop in their sport through there, which is an interesting one.
2: funny, you mentioned Lando. I had uh, Lando Norris's uh, performance psychologist on in, in show one. He was show one. Wow. Yeah, I know. He's, he's a great guy. And he's just started racing himself. Yeah. so that was putting his money where his mouth is Yeah. so i was talking about that sort of the planning and the, the professional approach okay. choosing to take a more professional approach but the question is so people are okay I, this is my passion i love this mm. sport and i go to work to pay for it but I, <clears throat> and i'm, I'm never going to we- win maybe but yeah, i still maybe. love it i'd just like to know how i can be more professional or yeah, yeah yeah take a more professional approach
1: yeah and I think I guess you know, where I was going to with the comment I made here is often we we will have young talented individuals who I guess our job here is to provide what I'd call a performance experience you know that may not be there there may not be some natural innate ability to get there or you don't have and that's just the reality there's only so many people but we want to provide an experience that helps provide the right challenging development environment so in you, when you talk about that professional approach you can look at what other people are doing that maybe full time and it is their job if that's what we define as, and therefore they can spend more time and effort on it. What systems and processes can you, can you put in place to take that as well? And it's the same. It's the same in all levels of sport, to be honest, particularly around how that's emerged. But I, I think that's a really good approach. You can learn about how people go about their role as opposed to what they do, and a lot, a lot of it is about that. It's about how you go about it. And very, taking that very process-driven approach is the right one. Because the reality is, in many cases, particularly in sport, the reason why we love it is this unpredictability. And there's only, you can control what you can control. But if Usain Bolt turns up and you're in the 100 metres and somebody's got some genetic gift, there's nothing you can do about those scenarios. So I think the minds, that there's a big thing around the mindset of thinking like that. So
2: what's a win for you? Because this is something that we talk, there's a lot of glum faces in the motorsport paddock, And... They can't, you know, cars or whatever in a race and there's just one winner and, you know, a couple of podium players. And how would you define a win in terms of that? For example, for me, a win is getting on the starting grid because there's so much time and energy and organization and uh, moving things around to even get to the position where your car is sitting on the grid ready to go. For me, that's a win. That's the, what, what, how would you define it? Is that the right way to think about it? Is that something you've experienced as well? That, like win every day kind of mentality?
1: Yeah, yeah. so. Actually, there's some, some interesting things that underpin this. And if you go back, there's some great research around studying individuals that have been super successful in many industries, particularly in sport. And there's lots of characteristics you may see in those individuals, which are the psychosocial things. And interestingly, so just as an example, there was some work done on what I call multiple medalists in great British sport, those that went on and did it again and again. And there were some characteristics for them that just showed that it was as much about being better every day as being able to put your game face on when it mattered. And there were some subtle changes in those that they may be trained with and those individuals and athletes that they trained with who were successful national, international level, but never quite made it. The mindset was too much focused on the outcome, less about what you're doing every day. And it was so that ability to really focus on changing things every day, getting those little wins are the things that you can control. And then, of course, they could put the game face on when it really mattered. They had all the prerequisites and they could compete but there's the a subtle difference in that mindset, <clears throat> And I guess, in that it's an obsessive, compulsive nature of wanting to improve all the time, and therefore you have a lot more control of what's happening with you, and that is a mindset piece. So I would agree. It's, everyone's win looks a little bit different, and there's a real skill. And I you mentioned about Lando's psychologist that would have worked with him, and they'll be similar. I suspect what you'll see. I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not. Gonna, they will work with athletes and helping find those things that are. You know, it's smart goal setting, isn't it? Really, as simplistic as it sounds, but putting some realism to it, there is a different Dave browser. We we'll talk about the difference between goals and dreams, and I think those are the—that's uh, the things that you have to be realistic about. But you, your goals are something that you can manage w- within the realism of what you have, and that's a success for you, isn't it? And I think that will give you a success. So when you go back again, you think, "Where's the? What's realistic next time?"
2: If you set a goal as. I want to win this. Is that therefore is that wrong or is that right? Because if that's out outside of your control to a large degree, it is
1: and it's uh, it comes back with the realism of that, isn't it? So everything's context important. If you had a lot more resources, and I've been I'm going into the same race as you, and I'm not doing it in and around my garage, and, it, and uh, th- there may well be a different realistic perspective on it. So I think uh, yeah, it is. And that's where a coach-athlete relationship is really important. That's where having a network of mentors is important because I think you need that to get that right. So it is so context-specific. If you've set that goal and you don't have, in your case, the equipment or been able to put the realities, the contact hours and the training and practice into it, you're setting yourself up to fail. And that's why there's got to be some realism in that and about what's a win for you. And that's where the, the best sports psychologists and the types of relationships you may have with others, mentors, other networks around you are really important to get that right.
2: So the interesting thing about motorsport traditionally, and I, I do think it's changing a little bit, but it has been this sport that hasn't really had coaches. Yeah. And so I'd be really interested to get your thoughts on coaches and coaching and even a mm-hmm. definition of what, ha- what you would describe as a coach. But I, I don't really know why. Maybe it's something to do with machoism or, you know, heroism. and you know, I'm just braver than you and the brake is just for, you know, coming into the so I don't use that. And, you know what I mean? There's something about a bravery element. We've, I don't know what it is. I don't know. There's something in there that has meant that people, traditionally the sport has not had. You, you talk about a car and the car can be rubbish and blah, blah, blah. But the driving and the driver and his mental or her mental approach or a way of thinking is something that that's, you just have to sort that out on your own. That's traditionally how it's been. And if you're asking for help, you're remedial in some way. Whereas I think in sport, it's slightly different. So it's a bit like, it's an advantage to have someone with expertise who can talk to you. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you think?
1: Yeah, as I said, I don't think anybody's ever the fountain of all knowledge. Whatever you call it, whether it's a coach, mentor, and all those types of characteristics, having somebody independent to your way of thinking and they will have different skill sets i just coaching looks different across different ages in different sports we there's executive coaching in business there's all those elements of it fundamentally it's about getting the best out of others and i think there's got to be a level of self-awareness first off where you recognize others can bring something to the approach something to you that could and sometimes that's built on some credibility if i started karting and i'm picking up the phone to samir because you you have some insight into that i'm seeking your technical expertise and coaching relationships change. So sometimes thinking of it, like I want to access somebody's technical know-how. But I think um, the way I view coaching is, is, about a much, is much about getting the best out of you as a person. And it's all the other skills that help you to be the best you can be, not just in your sport, but in life. And those things is a much bigger context. And I think they do cross over really well. So coaching is as much about the technical as it is about the development of you as an individual. Your mindset, your focus, and all of those things. And because it's hard to measure, so I'm going to say, yeah, engineering is a very deterministic, measurable objective. There is another quote which I'll just throw in it. everything that we can measure doesn't really matter. And everything that matters, we sometimes can't measure. So I think there's a recognition sometimes around what goes on above the neck. Sometimes we forget and we can't. We cannot power of your thought process, your desire, your ability to control your emotions, all of those characteristics are fundamental to you being successful as an individual. I don't think that's up for debate. So it's just the culture, particularly in engineering, in your perspective, is very deterministic because you have simulation models, you have every individual factor which influences race time. But I could have the best car, but i rock up and I don't really want to race. I don't have my game face on. and The start goes off and I'm a little, little bit off because of all I'm not heightened and I'm not ready to go on my adrenaline. There's all of those things which you can't miss. I think it, for anybody to achieve their best, having a coaching culture, I think, is a fundamental... If you went into any of those, is a fundamental element of being successful in whatever you do.
2: And What about nerves? Because even me sitting on the grid in my club race, such as it is you now on a, a wet and windy field somewhere in the UK that no one's ever heard of, I'm sitting on the grid... So I've had my win because I'm on the grid, but I'm really nervous because the lights are going out. Do professional athletes get nervous and how do they manage that in a way that it doesn't necessarily affect their performance? Is there anything that we can do?
1: Brilliant question. I didn't tee this one up for you. So this week we have a parents and sport webinar on pressure. I'm just gonna and we were really fortunate to a psychologist called Katie Warner, who's amazing. She's one of one of the most outstanding sites I've worked with. She like, works with in rugby and GB hockey. She worked at Olympic sports and loads of different domains. We had a guy called Tom Mitchell. Tom was England and Great Britain sevens captain. And we had a lady called Rihanna Fox, her dance and drama. So for performing the arts. And we were exploring this this area, or I'll call it um, pressure as a privilege. Katie gave me a brilliant video to play of a number of athletes who talk about the positive thing that comes from pressure. And of course, as a young developing athlete or a young student here at the school that I'm in, who's got exams, you've got peer pressures, you've got all of those things. How do you get to a point where you view it as a real positive? And there were some real key messages there that don't worry, stress is normal. That is the way our physiology works. So normalizing it your pressure, I can assure you, if you're feeling nervous, so will everybody else. So there's, there comes with that. And so we were exploring ways that you try to get to position where, you know, an Olympic medalist will talk about viewing that. And again, it's sometimes reframing it. A lot's about you're pressurized because you, you think you're trying to achieve the expectations of others. And actually, all the others want you to do is to do well. So there's lots of reasons why that may emerge. So I think that's where a coach and site can really help normalize those things. Because that's the reality is that the neurophysiology, that's just a normal response. Your heart's going to beat a bit faster. You're going to get a bit sweaty, as Eminem says. You know, those are all characteristics. And so it's always remembering why you're doing those things and invariably why people do sports is because they love it. They've got a real passion for it. And sometimes that's where you say so you've got to connect to your reasons why you're there and get into sort of a Point where you get great joy out of it, you love doing it. You've prepared as good as you can. All of those things can help manage it. Breathing skills, I think that would have been something that would have been overlooked. Mindfulness breathing.
2: What's a breathing? What's a breathing skill?
1: Because oh, there's some physiology where you do overactivate the vagal nerve. You can overactivate all your physiology, and particular ways of breathing can help manage that in the moment. But that need practice. So I think the answer to your question is pressure, stress isn't needs to be normalised. There are skills, methods and techniques that you can use to help you better control that. And therefore, when it comes, you've got a way of when you're going to race, you're thinking about the process you're going to deliver as opposed to the outcome. If you focus on that outcome and other things, you're thinking too far ahead. So there are skills that are coachable and trainable when it comes to your mindset and approach, which is where a coach can really help you. And if you're not willing to accept that, then you're always going to be leaving a performance advantage on the side.
2: Yourself self-coaching, is there something you could do with that? With that, Does that work?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think coaching is, the, I guess, the first element of coaching self-awareness. The fact you're able to recognize those situations is really important. I guess your self-awareness of those situations, and again, a coach may ask you the questions that help make you self-aware, whereas you just accept them as being normal, actually, or not normal, they're able to say, yes, they are normal. So you heighten your awareness around some of your physiological responses, your thought processes, everything that's going on. Yes, you can. So and that is the first stage of coaching. But then you have somebody who's independent to you, has got really great questioning skills or experiences where they can help unpick it. So if you create a really good dialogue where there's trust, you're able to explore and go down those rabbit holes and that will raise your awareness about what that looks like. And then you get into a stage of saying, so what, what can I do to manage it? And then you can look at some of those where whatever, there's so many, there's no single solution for everybody in that sort of sense, but you can manage them. And I think that's where a really good coach. And that's where having a network of others, you know, if you reach out to your fellow drivers and you were to say, do you get nervous? And they say, yeah, I do. This is what I've tried for me. And you ask somebody else and he says, well, this is what's worked for me. So A is that a willingness to have that conversation anywhere, admit it because they may think it's a sign of weakness and actually it's not a sign of strength. And then what do they do? Because as I say, you're never the finding
2: There's a paddock where before you race, you go to like a collecting area. So, yeah, so you know, it's like a buffer effectively during the race before, typically, or some period of time before the race, you know, so that you're ready when the current race finishes, you can go out. And there's a bit of a running joke in the sense of you, the, the different tracks you go to, how close is the nearest toilet to, you know, get ready to run off to the loo
1: yeah yeah and actually those environments the warm-up environments as you may have in other sports the holding pens are opportunities in some respects as well that in your practice if you're not practicing those things you may then get on the grid if you come out your if you haven't thought about it and planned for it and the way you race means you don't integrate those where it's the norm, norm yeah i'm trying to normalize it yeah the first time you go into it of course it's going to feel like that and so you need to that comes back to that concept of performance planning really thinking about the detail around actually in the holding pen environment. If I'm there for this amount of time, how have I prepared for it to ensure that when I get in my car, I'm ready to race? Because if I'm over-anxious and I've got heightened awareness and it means I hit the accelerator too quickly and I ram somebody up or... I'm trying to downplay it too far, so I don't play that. there's all of those things, so that comes back to that principle of what what's a marginal gain in that you've yeah you know, you, you, it's not such a marginal gain, is it? That comes back to your planning process, you experiencing it and prioritizing the fact that actually I need to get that right, I need to think about it. I need to practice it, I need to try some skills to do it, and then you try something and it works one time it doesn't work one time that those are behavioral things you have to cope yeah i'd be I would be planning and I would be practicing that thing in my race in advance whenever I go and practice and I'll be trying to recreate it as much as I can of course the question then is can you ever truly recreate competition and some would say yes or no in different sort of scenarios but that comes down to really good coaching really good planning all of those scenarios and the more you do it the better you get at it like
2: anything yeah so you're practicing every element of performance not just the bit you do on the track
1: yeah absolutely the moment you get up the quality of sleep before we know before the big race, people will be nervous. That's just real. That's reality. How are you getting ready for that? You need to think all that about that running. It's like a time motion process. That for some they just that's the way you need to think about.
2: It. Uh, is there any tips for getting a good night's sleep the night before a big uh, event?
1: I think the reality is, as we know, before a big event anyway, you are going to get less sleep. So I think you've got to think about that in the running and make sure you've had enough sleep in the days building up to it. So you sort of buffer your sleep there. Yeah, so it's not going to guarantee it. So everyone reacts to it in a slightly different way. For some people, it may be a really calm night in the sense that, but you know, you're going to compete. It's game day. You're putting your game face on. There's all those things that you want to do your best comes back to that pressure scenario. What are you trying to achieve in this one particularly? It's what you've got control of. If you do everything you can control, that's the stuff that you've got to think about as opposed to the uncontrollable and focus on your process and what you need to do to achieve your best. And there is, I asked, there's a brilliant psychologist called Michael Gervais. He runs a brilliant podcast about performance, but he interviews lots of people. So he's got a brilliant definition of performance and he's got two axes. And The Y axis at the top, it says world's best. And at the bottom, it says personal best. on the x-axis, you've got outcome and on the far side process. So if you have to plot yourself, if you imagine that four-box matrix and you ask people what performance is, unsurprisingly, probably most, I'm just listening to you, I'm second guessing, most people go top right. It's about outcome and it's about being world's best. And, of course, on game day, it may well be. But in your training and your preparation, of which you spend 99.9% of it, you may go the other extreme, which is it's about process and about personal best. So every day... You may do one rep extra. You know, there's something else that shows progress, but it's about what you're doing to contribute to that thing on race day. And that's where the planning process comes in. You've really thought about all the things that are going to make a difference when you've got that race or that preparation. And therefore, what you build up in your plan, you're trying, that's where it comes back to your decision-making. Right, I've got this much time, this much money. What am I going to spend time and effort on? And I'm going to dial up this dial, this dial, this dial. And then we're going to go out and play it out. And that's where I focus. And every day, if I'm just trying to get stronger, God, I'm seeing that progress. And that's a personal win. That's internally, the internal motivation in the drive will say, I'm moving in the right direction. Because there's so many things that impact that outcome. And so if you think about perform a performer and performance in that light, personal best, world's best, and you think about it as outcome and process, you got to recognize that's a dynamic matrix that you're floating around. But 99.9% of your time, is preparing for something. You know, for a young person on a sport development journey, uh, you would like to think that they're spending 99.9% of their life in that sort of space, but the reality is whenever you go and compete at whatever level, whatever standard, you get some of that stuff around. So that's just one way of thinking about it.
2: That's fascinating. It's really good. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time. I could talk to you about this stuff all day. It's really interesting. I hope people get one or two things there because it's just... Some really clear ways of thinking. I love uh, the better way of looking at marginal gains from someone who was there from the beginning, that the idea of the process is so- something that when you have a process performance plan with a clear goal, that's the right kind of goal for you. I think some of the questions around how do you prioritize what to do, all f- falls out in the wash, doesn't it? That's the goal that I'm trying to do that's mostly in my control. Therefore, all I need to do is this. I don't need to worry about all this other stuff because... All this other stuff isn't going to help me achieve that goal. And that you go from not having to, I don't know what to prioritize. It's I've worked out what my goal is. And now the priorities have sorted themselves out. There still is
1: um, a bit of an art to that. And then that's where having a network of mentors and other experienced people can guide the decisions still with you. In your case, you're going to race. You're still trying to make a decision. Um, and that's okay. Because I think, as I say, you just got to realize if you knew what the outcome was, you are just doing it. And you're trying to figure those things out. And it, the language I sort of use is trying to navigate that uncertainty. That's what you're constantly trying to do. And it isn't. As you say, if I, every young person I saw, uh, if I could predict whether they were going to become a professional or Olympic athlete, God, I'd be a billion trillionaire. I, I don't. And many people don't. They'll see what's in front of them. And that journey is every performance journey or everything you do. It's non-linear, it's dynamic, it's constantly changing. So you just have to accept that is it and be comfortable with that. And then, you, as you say, you put everything in place to at least manage those things you can control. And off you go, have some fun. Remember why you're doing it.
2: I think that's a great way to finish because it is about having fun, particularly as something that is... So whilst we were talking about this professional approach, one of my previous guests was like, look, this is the approach and the professional way of going about doing it. But if at any point this crosses a line from uh, fun to a job or a chore, you need to, you need to have another think about it because this, the, the outcome that we're trying to get here is, is about fun and, uh, yeah. and enjoyment that hopefully will help a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Even if you're going to read the autobiographies of a number of people who've been amazingly successful in sport, often a common theme comes through. They just love what they do. <laughs> there is a circus now. Why would the Brownleys in there when they're peaky? Just want to go and put the 30 odd hours in a week, every week, run it in a beautiful area in the Peak District, cycling, riding, running, swimming. You know, there is a, at that level, there is a monotony to it. There is a need to do the basics repeatedly. But at the bottom line, you take all the circus away that is in and around high level sport. You know, I think there was a great quote. I remember Egan Bernal won the Tour de France and they're asking, there's a question to him about the pressure. He said, pressure. He says, I, I love the adrenaline. I love the racing. I love that. So you take away all of that. They just, that's what they thrive on. And I think I'm um, just remembering that sometimes. Why am I here? If it becomes that unhealthy pressure, especially when you're racing at a younger amateur level, you've got to question why you're doing it. And I think that's the important thing always to go back to. And let me assure you, people at the very top, you strip away that circus that'll be the reason why they do i do you know you hear that come through i watch them f1 i'm not you know I'm a massive fan i particularly understand it but i think that comes through from lewis, lewis, lewis Hamilton. and i think that's the thing for all of
2: us honestly that's a great way to think thank you so much i really appreciate you taking the time scott
1: great no worries good i hope they hope the audience enjoy thanks for me
0: How absolutely fascinating to have Scott on the show. Someone who's been at the absolute inner circle, the center of some of these amazing sporting achievements over the last few years. The way he emphasises the conversations, not just the tactics of the marginal gains philosophy, is something I really hope you picked up on there. Again, linking to some of the previous guests, we're talking about the WHY we're doing something, not only WHAT we're doing to improve. Blindly copying your competitors isn't going to get you what you want, but it's hard sometimes to see the wood of the trees. I hope hearing that from the horse's mouth of someone who's been involved in such success over the years in the world of Olympic and professional sports will give you confidence to really stay back and have another think about why it is you're doing and and what are the small things that you can do to try and improve your chances and your performance it's a real honor to have him on the show and i hope you enjoyed listening to what he had to say you may know that at the end of season one i wrote the motorsports playbook a summary distilling the first 20 shows into nuggets of wisdom i made the notes so that you don't have to if you've not got it yet go and grab yourself a copy from the website If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us at yourdata driven.com.